Hi, everyone. Welcome to Adopting Wellness Podcast. I'm Katie. And I'm Laura. And we are so excited because we have our second guest, Susan Carpenter Sims, is here. Yay! Woo-woo! So, Susan, we all kind of met on Instagram, and uh, that's how we know each other. And so Susan is a domestic adoptee, former foster child of the baby spoof era, originally from Canada, but now living in, oh, Taos? Is that how you say it? Yes. Taos, New Mexico. She came out of the fog during COVID lockdown at age 52. And while newly in the role of caregiver to her elderly adoptive father, Soon after, she was introduced to internal family systems therapy as a trauma healing modality and began integrating it with other longtime coping tools like making collages and studying tarot. She holds an MA in English with a concentration in creative writing, an MBA in management, and a certification as a ceremony celebrant. She occasionally blogs at SusanCarpenterSims.com. Susan, we're so happy. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. I can't wait to ask you so many questions, especially even just this little, this like bio. I just have so many things. Um, But I guess just to open it, how do you relate to wellness and as an adoptee, what have you done um, to further your journey in wellness? And you can take it in whatever direction you want to go in. Okay. Well, um, I think like a lot of adoptees that I've talked to anyway, um, I've struggled with dissociation a lot in my life. Um, And Mm -hmm. so being kind of disembodied and so wellness was not a word I resonated with at all <laughs> for a long mm-hmm. time because I associated it with exercise and, you know, not <laughs> yes. eating carbs or fat and, you know, things like yeah, that. Yeah, it sounds terrible, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it still does. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think my first real venture into wellness as an adult with that kind of idea in mind of doing something good for myself was to get into yoga. And that was long before I came out of the fog. Um, Probably around 2008, I guess, is when I went to my first yoga class, 2009. And I was so blown away by it, you know, because it's like, oh, this is, this feels good. Like this actually feels good. I was like, I can feel my shoulders for the first time in my life, you know, because I think also like a lot of adoptees, I have rock hard shoulders, you know. Same. Yeah, yeah, we like to live like with our shoulders up by yeah. our ears. <laughs> right. Well, and, and one of the things I realized when I came out of the fog is like, it's like I've been in infant startle response my entire life, mm. you know, uh, that was kind of the metaphor, but even not a metaphor. I think it's actually actual in a sense, you know, but anyway, um, so yeah, so yoga was my first kind of opening my mind more to wellness in general. And then since coming out of the fog, um, you know, the, the mental wellness part has really taken precedence for me. Like that's what's really opened up for me more because 
I spent my whole life trying to better myself, trying to figure myself out, trying to, you know, improve myself um, as a person. That was kind of my focus. And I never could really get anywhere with it, you know? Like I would do all this work and and still have the same struggles, do the same mm-hmm. things. And um, and so I think the big thing for me with coming out of the fog and, and connecting with other adoptees on Instagram uh, and being introduced to certain resources like The Body Keeps the Score, that book, that was life-changing for me because for the first time in my life, it was like, oh, I get why I'm this way. You know, it's mm-hmm. not a character defect. Like mm. there are reasons for this. And just the, it's like so much weight came off of me just with that recognition that mm-hmm. I don't have to feel bad about struggling with these things. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a meandering answer to the question, but from there it kind of led into, you know, discovering internal family systems and working with that and using that as sort of a framework to bring together some of the other tools that I've always kind of gravitated to as far as mental wellness, emotional wellness. Mm-hmm. I Something that you said really resonated, you know, you talk about like trying really hard over and over and over and never really getting anywhere. And I wonder how how much that's related to this idea that like, I always have to strive for something. Like I think as an adoptee, that really is a mentality that I've innately carried. I have to strive for something to kind of give me the worth that I feel like I need to justify me existing. And I also think another aspect of it is perfectionism um, paired with the striving that I always have to be doing something to also prove my worthiness of existence. And I, I guess I haven't really thought about it, um, in that way, but I, I can see now, even just in this small conversation that I have also often strived to to kind of accomplish different things and really have just gone in circles. Um, I don't know if it's because maybe I'm setting myself up for failure because I'm expecting me to be from, go from point A to point Z um, or if, or I don't know. So that's really interesting to even think about. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think all of us in this culture struggle with that to some degree, just because of late stage capitalism and the values of that, but adoptees, especially because we are more products of that than anyone else in a sense, you know? Yeah, it really changes things when you're brought into a family and a culture for a purpose, right? That And not just as a natural part, um, like people who are not adopted might feel more like that. I can, I can absolutely see that. Yeah. Like the transactional nature of it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I used to kind of think to myself, I wasn't born, I was adopted, you know, and there's a huge Mm -hmm. difference between birth as this natural act, you know, this mysterious, beautiful thing. And 
being passed from one person to another for the exchange of money. Amen. Can we get that like tattooed <laughs> somewhere on my, like, I need a reminder. Oh, right. You're going to tattoo yeah. that. I don't know. That's a long thing to get tattooed. I don't okay. know if I'm ready for that. Yeah. That's, oh. that's a phrase. Aww. Well, you mentioned, um, yoga. Yeah. And I know this wasn't really part of what we had said we were going to talk about, but I would love to hear a little more about the evolution from when you started doing yoga more towards where you are now, what that was like for you. <laughs> it's more like a devolution, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can relate. Uh, yeah, I was so enthusiastic about it for a while. Like I would go to classes twice a week, you know, and then I was doing it at home a lot too. And then my mom got sick and died and my dad moved in with me and the pandemic hit and I have done next to no yoga since then. Yeah. Yep. So you've taken on that role of caregiver. Yep. Um, and I'm sure that's had a, a huge effect on you. Yeah. Also. Yeah. I mean, to the point where I can't even wrap my head around it, you know, like I'll have these moments where I'm like, wow, I am in a very different place. I mean, all the combination of all of it, coming out of the fog, taking care of my father, the pandemic, moving in with my father, having my whole family around me, because um, we got a, we're in a multi-generational family compound now, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's, I can't even articulate all of what that has meant for me, but yoga is one of the things that's fallen away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've filled it with other things and I can totally yeah. relate to that. Like we, Katie and I have talked about this before, but like, you know, our, one of the things we said is, you know, our wellness needs or our journey is never the same for very long because we're always kind of evaluating it and picking up other things. And I can relate to like, I think, I think a lot of us do this. We go down these wormholes, right. Of with one thing and we like, like I've even done this with food. Like I'll only eat the same thing for breakfast for like literally a year of my life. And then it, one day I wake up and I'm like, if I ever see, you know, oatmeal again, I'm going to scream, you know? And it, I think sometimes some of the, some of those things we do can kind of take on some of that yeah. um, or just fall away because they're not practical in our lifestyle anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it um, for me is that during the pandemic, I couldn't go to classes. And where I'm living, there isn't really a space that's big enough or private enough for me to do it. Um, you know, except my bedroom, and I've got this big fluffy rug in there. And it just doesn't feel like I love my fluffy rug because laying on the floor is one of my wellness activities. Um, so but yeah, <laughs> Shavasana is the best yoga pose right? ever. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yoga is so frustrating to me because I like the foundation of it is breathing. And I feel like I can never breathe while I'm moving. And I never realized how often I hold my breath. And, and that's, that's what makes yoga so challenging for me is being intentional about the breathing. Um, and sometimes it's, it's painful. Like, mm -hmm. like what you said, how you carry so much in your shoulders and I do too. And, um, uh, oftentimes it prevents me from actually like doing something successfully in yoga. 
but also just being conscious of, I have to breathe. How do you breathe? Like, it's just so hard. It's yoga is really challenging for me. I can, I can relate to that. Like I, I have an issue with meditations where they want you to take deep breaths, especially going to sleep. I can't breathe when I'm going to sleep. Like my breath gets super shallow when I lay down on my bed and it feels like scary to try to breathe more deeply, if not impossible. But for some Mm -hmm. reason, I think like with yoga, I quickly gravitated to one particular teacher because of the way that she led the breathing and um, because of the slowness of the poses and stuff. Like I didn't like flow classes where you're moving through the poses really fast. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that for me, that was, I I was lucky to find a teacher right away that, that did it. She was trauma informed and (laughs) my dog is, I love your dog (laughs) jumping on me, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I completely understand what you're saying. I'm so interested to hear more about how tarot has been a part of your wellness. I'm just so interested because as you know, most of my life I grew up in like a a very conservative Christian environment and so tarot was part of, you know, what is perceived to be witchcraft and and negative. And so this bias has always kind of lived in me, even though I haven't really had any kind of thoughts around it besides what was told to me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm like super interested to hear how that's played a part in your life and, and what it's meant to you and, and um, how it relates to wellness for you. Yeah. Um, I think I've always kind of had this, I I was not raised that way. So I didn't have a lot of those biases. Um, Mm -hmm. but also I've also been rebellious. So even if I had been raised that way, I probably still would have. (laughs) Yeah, you you were. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I was thinking about it this morning when I was thinking about being on here today, that the first tarot deck, my first introduction to it was I was Christmas shopping at a mall and I was in a bookstore. I was like 18, 19, maybe. Um, and there was this tarot set, you know, it was a deck and a couple of books. And so I got it for myself. I don't remember what I bought for whoever I was shopping for, but I, I bought that for myself and started learning it. And then not too long after that, I got a job at a new age bookstore, which was awesome because I could sit there and just read all day, you know? (laughs) Um, So that was when it started. But, um, and at that time, you know, I really overdid it with tarot for a few years of just like looking to it for everything, you know, in this kind Mm. of way of like wanting, wanting answers, wanting, and Mm. over time, you know, that, that has matured that kind of approach. Um, now to me, it's less about like finding answers and more about sort of, um, it's almost like taking a snapshot of your inner world in a sense. Mm. Um, and so symbology archetypes, that's really what appeals to me. Um, Mm. in general, I love that kind of stuff. And tarot is such a it's like a complete system of that, you know? Okay. Talk more about that. Talk more about that. Yeah. What does that all mean? Yeah. Um, 
Well, you know, archetypes. So an archetype is, is like a, a pattern, right? It's like mm -hmm. an underlying pattern um, of, of the human psyche, basically, or the world at large. I mean, you can look at it, you know, beyond the human for sure. Um, and so like, this is one of the things with, with doing internal family systems, um, doing parts work is that, um, those archetypes live within you, you know, one thing, one kind of epiphany that I had uh, a couple of years ago actually was that instead of looking for like, what is my archetype? Which one is me? I am all of them. We are yeah. all, all of them. They all live in us. They live in the world and they're accessible to all of us. And so in a sense, like with the tarot, um, you know, just to give kind of a background of it or an explanation of it for people who don't know much about it, um, it's 78 cards and 22 of those cards are what they call the major arcana. So those are the, the primary archetypes. And they're numbered zero through 21. Zero is the fool and 21 is the world or the universe, it's called in some decks. And so the fool is on a journey through all those other archetypes and encounters. The fool is the innocent, you know. Um, most traditional decks show this sort of uh, like non-binary person, really, very androgynous figure standing on, youthful looking, standing on the edge of a cliff um, with this happy expression about to step off the cliff without even seeing it. And that's all of us. Like, we're on a journey and we have to move forward, um, but we don't mm. know what we're getting ourselves into. <laughs> yeah. And so then the rest of the 20, the other 21 archetypes um, are the journey, right? And so that's how it connects to wellness for me, because then it's like this, this imagery that I can use to understand my psychological states and how to deal with them and um, give me perspective. You know, it's sort of like seeing your insides outside of yourself. Yeah, I, I see so much value in that for adoptees too about, you know, the, the lack of mirroring that we have to be able to mirror mm -hmm. ourselves back to us is so powerful. Um, yeah. But also in a, in a way that connects us to sort of these universal symbols and archetypes in the world, you know, helping us kind of find our place. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I was thinking about it, like, you know, the, the whole concept of the ghost kingdom, mm. that w working with archetypes, working with parts, makes it more like a, the guide kingdom, you know, like mm. you have all these inner guides. Um, and, you know, it, you can look at that in the kind of esoteric way of having spirit guides and all that kind of stuff. And I, for a long time, I was very, very anti that, like for myself, I just, the idea of having spirit guides just seemed way too, like part of it was because another adoptee thing, I was independent. Nobody was going to guide me. I was in charge of my own reality that, you know, um, and so now the way that I see that is, is different, you know, it's not these external entities that are guiding me. 
it's these archetypes that are accessible to me because they are universal and within me. Mm. When you say ghost kingdom, Susan, for those that may not know that, the way I understand ghost kingdom is, you know, the the life that could have been for us as an adoptee. Mm. How is that how you understand it? Or do you have a um, well, I, I guess I see it as more like the, the ways that you imagine your biological family. So mm-hmm. yes, it is the life that could have been, but there are people in that world that you're imagining, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like for me, I don't know, I think I posted about this on Instagram at one point, but I used to kind of secretly, not so secretly, but um, believe that my father was John Lennon, you know? And like, did I really believe that? Well, no, not really, but it could be, right? And so that was that was part of my ghost kingdom, you know, John Lennon yeah. as my father kind yeah. of idea. So now it's like, now that I know what I know about my actual biological father, which who was not a nice person, um, I can still have that John Lennon fantasy, but in a different way, you know? Yeah. Um, like, what is it about John Lennon that I would want him to be my father? What are, what are the qualities that he has? Because those are in me. And so I can have a John Lennon part of myself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I am also really interested in how you have incorporated collage mm. into your work of healing and wellness. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that again has been something I've done for a long, long time. And it wasn't until I came out of the fog that I started realizing how much sense it makes for an adoptee because, you know, we're, we're fragmented. Um, and when it's really hard to make any kind of a comprehensive, coherent narrative about who we are, um, and so, yeah, collage is a way of making a story that doesn't, it doesn't have a beginning, a middle and an end. It doesn't follow this narrative arc or whatever, but it, it puts the pieces of yourself together in a way that makes sense to you. You know, like my mm-hmm. collages aren't for other people, really, they're for me, like, um, which is one reason why I've always avoided the term artist, uh, people would call it art and I'd be like, that's not art. I'm just doing it for myself. You know, I'm, I'm sort of easing into the idea of it as art now because I, I am doing it more as like work, like artistic work these days. There's that element to it, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really intuitive process for me. I mean, this is how it connects with wellness to me is that it's not, it's not like something that I'm mentally controlling. I don't have a big grand plan, you know. Um, sometimes I do for some of the work that I'm doing now, but but when I'm making a collage for myself, it's really about um, letting what's unconscious in me come forth and express itself. And that's also how it connects to parts work again. It's less that I'm making a collage about my parts and more that I'm letting parts of myself come out and express themselves through collage. Mm. So when you say collage is like, what kind of materials are you using? Is this like how I'm envisioning um, 
what I used to do as a kid, like magazines and yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've gotten more um, adventurous recently, mm-hmm. like using fabric and other kinds of things, but mostly, yeah, magazines. Um, I, I see have, behind you, there's a whole bookshelf. Are those all, all magazines? All yeah. magazines, the entire wow. bookshelf. Oh my gosh. Books. Yeah. Um, so I have a magazine addiction. <laughs> A lot I'm of them look like base. National Geographic. Is that right? They yeah. are. Yeah. A lot of them. Awesome. Are I have them organized so that like I have fashion magazines, nature magazines, food and cooking magazines, home, like better homes and gardens and things like that. Um, spirituality and health. I have a friend who has a subscription to spirituality and health um, and to Oprah's magazine. And so I have tons of those because she gives them all to me when she's done with them, you know? Um, yeah. Wow. That's great. That's so cool. I I kind of love it. I love what you were saying about your, your parts, like letting them kind of, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this right, come forward, kind of Mm -hmm. just make, make, make themselves known in a way, maybe in a more concrete way where we can see them. Um, and I know parts is a, is a part of that internal family system. So I wanted to ask you more about, you know, internal family systems and how you understand that and how that, because I know now that's really like woven into everything that you yeah. do creatively, right? Yeah, it really is. I mean, it, it kind of, it made a lot of things line up for me. It sort of brought a lot of things together for me um, as a framework because mm-hmm. I mean, for, for people who don't know about it, so internal family systems, it was developed by Richard Schwartz. Um, and the idea is that we all have parts, right? Like we have, um, parts of ourselves that are, that we can actually develop relationships with almost as if they're separate entities. Um, and that these parts are there, a, a lot of them have developed to protect us. And so if we experience some kind of childhood trauma, which of course all adoptees have, uh, you begin to very early on develop these protector parts, these parts that come forward to um, try to keep you safe or to keep you safe from the pain of younger parts that are wounded. So um, it's all very relevant to adoption, you know? Yeah. That was one of the frustrating things to me when I came out of the fog or even before, really, I would have these times where I would be aware of this deep, deep wound, but I couldn't get at it. I couldn't access it. The only time that I could access it is when it was taking control of me in some Mm. situation. Um, And so through identifying like, oh, I have this wounded inner infant, this newborn that is devastated inside of me. And that so much, so much comes from that, you know, parts that I then developed to try to protect that baby parts that developed to try to keep me away from the baby so that I wouldn't be overwhelmed with this pain. Um, being able to get to know these different parts of myself and identify them and have conversations with them in my mind, you know, or through journaling has been so profoundly helpful to me. 
That's amazing. I, I relate to that so much, Susan. Um, I don't know when, when you first were aware of your infant self, but for me, it was definitely started when I was pregnant and, Mm, and when my son was really little and it was just, it was like where I was confronted with that part. I don't know if um, you can talk more about when you, because I think you're right. I think there are so many things we've had to develop as adoptees that keep us from that part of ourselves. And it's not one that, that is just like readily available. Maybe. I don't know if that's the right way to say that, but no, I think I, I, that's a good way of putting it, actually. It's just, yeah, it's like we don't remember. I mean, that's what makes it so hard, right? Like, we don't remember what happened to us. And so how do you work with that? Yeah. Um, and when it's something that has affected you so profoundly and you can't remember it, it's it's really challenging. And so, yeah, um, working with working with that part for me has meant actually picturing myself, holding myself as a baby, Mm. you know, like Mm -hmm. just simple things like that. Um, just being present with that baby and it can be really challenging at times to do that. And there, you know, there's other, there's parts of me that don't want me to do that. They think it's not safe. (laughs) Yeah, it's so, profoundly for me. It was physically painful. I had yeah. to push through sort of this physical pain to yeah. to allow myself to acknowledge, even acknowledge that part, and then get to the part point where I would hold and and imagine holding and touching. It's really it's really hard. I'm glad you're yeah sharing that. Yeah, it's very vulnerable, and it's very mm-hmm. there's a lot of sadness. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's like we talk about pain, but um, to me, there's a there's a difference between pain and like sadness, Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like there's a sadness that's so strong that it could drown you, you know? Um, And that's where that baby lives. So I think my entire life I've, I've lived in fear of that part overwhelming me over overtaking me, you know? which is where the not breathing comes from. It's like, if you don't breathe, then you can't cry. <laughs> mm. My therapist recently, actually today, just, she's been asking me for the last couple of years about if I can, um, if I can see myself holding my infant self. And originally when she asked me to do this, I told her, I can't even envision my infant self. I can't envision me as a baby, what I look like, even though I I have pictures of myself, I cannot access that. And recently she has asked me again, including today. And I said, yeah, I think I can see myself now. And and I don't know what unlocked that, (laughs) but I think it's so interesting to, I just think it's interesting because it's, it's something that's like not tangible. Like you, you know, it's something that's preventing you from unlocking that part of your brain. And then through work, through a lot of, you know, process and and healing, sometimes it's unlocked and, Mm -hmm. and 
I, I don't know why or what the difference is um, in the last couple of years, but I just think it's so fascinating to me um, that now I'm able to say, yeah, I can, I can see myself. Yeah. I have a little baby. I yeah. can say for me, Katie, it was a lot of, I needed to be safe. I needed to get mm. out of that survival mode. And we think about how vulnerable infants are, you know an infant is not going to want to come forward for us when we're trying to just manage surviving. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, a lot of us spend a lot of our lives in that survival mode with those parts you were talking about, Susan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and two, I think what, like one of the keys to all of this that we're talking about is imagination, you know? Um, and imagination is not, highly valued in our culture, except for what it can get you in terms of success in life, you know, imagining your future, that kind of thing. Um, but the kind of imagination that kids use, playful imagination, imagination where you're living in a fantasy world, you know, those things are considered negative once you're an adult. And so I think we, we all end up with these parts that try to keep that shut down on top of all of the trauma that's already there trying to keep it, you know, shut down. So yeah, it's a challenge. That's interesting because I have always kind of felt that I don't have a great imagination at all. Even when I was younger as a kid, I felt like I played very practically. It was like, I played sports, I played on teams, I did individual sports. It was it was all with a specific purpose that I knew the rules to. But when it came to like playing with I hated playing with dolls, but when it came to playing or imagining a storyline that I made up, I don't recall any of that kind of play. And, you know, my last job was at a toy company. And, and even then, like, I felt like I could not relate to children who played with toys because I never played, I really wasn't interested in it. And I think it's really interesting because I think perhaps my, uh, the way my brain was developed or I don't, I don't know, I don't know what it was, but my imagination I felt like was a little stumped as a kid. That's really interesting. My childhood was almost exactly the opposite of that. I lived in my imagination. Everything was a story. I narrated every single thing that I did. You know, That's funny. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like for some of us, imagination might be that escape that we're looking for. Like you were talking about the sense of control. Maybe we, when we're in that place, we feel, and for some of us, maybe the opposite, we feel completely mm -hmm. out of control. Like Katie, I think I was probably a little closer to how you were. I like to be told what to do, when to do, and how to do it. Mm -hmm. And even now I was a very musical child and I'm a very musical person, but I had this block when it came to writing my own music because I just was in that mode in my head where I was like, no, I can read music. Like I, you can tell me what to sing and I'll sing it. But mm -hmm. that creative piece, it was like, there was a block there. So I know all of this. I mean, Richard Schwartz would tell us that there are <laughs> multiple parts at play 
uh, kind of take wanting to take the reins. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's so many different factors that go into making us the way that we are. I was wondering when you were talking, Katie, about, you know, you said you were raised in a conservative Christian household. And that, I mean, I've, you know, been in the world of conservative Christianity, and it's definitely anti-imagination, you know. Um, Mm. Imagination is of the devil, you know. Um, Mm. we're not supposed to interpret things. We're not supposed to, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So I wonder if that played into it for you at all. I don't know. I I also think I've, I've always been so conscious of, cause I love art and I love music and I love, I just love art so much, but I also like Laura, I always struggled with creating something from scratch. That, and and I think that's related to imagination. It's related to like this creativity that of like a storyline or, or something that is created in your mind and then executing it. And I've never been able to do that with it with, I mean, with painting, with art, with literally everything, like anything that's considered kind of creative I have never been able to do it from start to finish. I've always just been able to like maybe mimic it or copy it halfway through and then making it good. But from the beginning, I've never been able to do like something from scratch. And I, again, I think it's related to imagination and not really practicing that side of my brain, but also yeah, there has to be something that like kind of stumped it as well. <laughs> That's why collage is really cool though, because, you know, and this is also why I've avoided calling it art because that puts all this pressure on it. Like I have to create art now. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. for me, I mean, collage is about like, you pick a random stack of magazines, you know, um, and randomly flip through them and just pull out stuff that appeals to you. And don't ask yourself why it appeals to you. Just pull it, pull it out, take out the whole page. Um, and then once you've been through your stack of magazines, take what you've, you know, pulled out and start to cut it out and then get your canvas, whatever surface you're using, what you're going to glue it on, and then just start arranging it. And however it fits, you know, however you feel like it looks best together. Um, Mm. and that's it. And then glue it. Yeah. And it doesn't have to mean anything. It doesn't have to look good to anybody, but you, it doesn't even have to look good to you, (laughs) you know? Um, but there's Mm -hmm. something in that process that happens where it's kind of like you're bypassing that part of your mind that says this has to be this way. It has to have a beginning, a middle and an end. It has to have, you know, a function of some kind. Um, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like similar when we were talking to Jen, you know, our, our first interview, um, when she talks about, she gets into this like flow state when she's creative. Do you also find that you kind of get into that when you do collage? Yeah, sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, because um, like one of the reasons I've done a lot more collage over the past couple of years uh, 
has been because I do live in a house with a lot of other people and get interrupted a lot. And I don't mind being interrupted when I'm doing collage. Like I can't write and be interrupted. It will make me lose my mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But collage, I don't mind. So like that flow state that I get into, like with writing needs complete, just isolation, you know, to stay in that flow state. And with collage, it's not like that. Like I can flow with the collage and be having a conversation with someone else at the same time. And I'm not sure why, but. You're so adaptive and creative, Susan. I, I love that about you. I feel like, you know, all these different mediums, I can, I can absolutely see how they've all served you and how you've had to find, you know, yeah, what you resourceful. need. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, one of those things of like, necessity is the mother of invention, you know, totally. like, when I first was living with my dad at the beginning of the pandemic, um, or even before, right before it started, I was so exhausted and so overwhelmed. And so just like my whole life was completely revolving around him at that time, because he was like, he's much better now, physically than he was then. He was in a wheelchair then it was, it was. And so I started writing again at night because it was the only thing I could do. And it was like, I just have to do something. I have to sit and do something that's mine. And so I started writing again. So that was what served me at that time, you know, and it's, it's, yeah, it changes over time. What your writing is incredible. And thank you. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we, we talked a little bit about you in the last episode about some of the, when you followed the prompts that Katie had for, mm. for Nam last November. And, um, it's clear that to so me good. that, yeah, well, it's clear to me that you really enjoy writing and I do. Katie's prompts were, were very excellent. They were, they, they were. were good ones. <laughs> it was such perfect timing for me because I good. was just, you know, like that, in all honesty, those prompts wouldn't have appealed to me at all the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of where I was, it was like, you know, I need to dive into emotions. Like that would have, I would have been like, no, I'm not not going there. But yeah. I was ready for it, you know. Yeah. You sure were. You killed it. You came, you showed up. You mm-hmm. did. Because I, I think I probably did maybe four of them. And I was like, mm. I think it's time. I didn't even try. Take a break. I love the discipline of it. You know, you were (laughs) Laura. You're talking about liking to be told what to do, when to do it. Mm -hmm. I have that about me too, in in a way. And so having that discipline, sometimes having like, okay, this day we do this, this day we do that. Like sometimes that really works for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But but knowing knowing that you need to assess that and kind of suss that out and feel it out. Do I need this right now? Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's part of it too, right. Is being able to really figure out what you need and not just like suffer through it, which I think some some of us have also taken discipline Mm -hmm. to that place. Well, Mm -hmm. and I, you know, have to also say balance it by saying that I rarely finish things. I start. Yeah. Oh gosh. I know we can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, I so. story of my life, really, you know, and, and I'm at an age where I'm looking back on my life now in some ways and being like, hmm, what have I actually accomplished out of all the many things that I have started? So, yeah. <laughs> well, the wisdom is strong with you, Susan. Thank you have you. to say there's so much wisdom in you and I'm grateful that you're sharing it with us. I'm grateful that you asked me on here. I feel very honored. <laughs> Susan, what would you give as a piece of advice to someone, to an adoptee that's thinking to themselves, I need to start doing something for myself. I want to start looking at wellness and using my creativity of some kind. What kind of advice would you give them? I mean, honestly, I, I have to go back to internal family systems for that one, because I think doing parts work, you know, I mean, internal family systems is one way of doing parts work. There are other ways, but um, learning how to tune into different parts of yourself, I think, and, and have conversations with different parts of yourself and recognize that they all have a positive intent for you, even when they're doing something destructive or, you know, whatever, that that's a starting point for almost anything else. You know, that's really insightful. Cause like I was thinking about, I was listening to you guys, um, your last conversation that you just had with each other about where you are with your goals and that kind of thing. And, um, the mindfulness thing and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And it's like, what is the resistance? Like we all have resistance to these different things that we think we want to do. So that's an actual part that's resisting and they're doing it to protect you in some way. So if you can like, listen to that part, like actually tune into it and say, I love you. And I appreciate what you're trying to do for me. Um, and then convince that part, like we're safe, we can do this, you know, that that's yeah. huge. Like being able to do that has had a huge impact for me. That's in right on time for what actually, since Katie and I filmed that I've been thinking about that Susan. And I think, I think the answer for me with that block is grief is that fear of drowning in grief and just not wanting to get stuck down there, yep. you know, because it's so painful and debilitating at times. Um, yeah. you know, I think all of us have had times in our lives where we've felt like we aren't going to make it if we let that grief out. And I think yeah. when we get still, when I get still, I'll speak for myself, when I get still, it's there. It's like in the background and I'm more aware of it. It's, yeah. it's hard. I, I hear you. I, I can relate to that completely. And, and it is, I mean, it is dangerous that that level of grief is actually dangerous. Yep. You know, like that's not the kind of thing you want just running around and running your life because it can kill you, you know? Yep. And um, it has more killed some of us. One. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, yep. uh, and so, yeah, like, I, I feel like it's important to say this about parts work that, you have these parts, but then the other, the other thing is that you have self, right? Like this is what Richard Schwartz talks about is that you have self with a capital S that is your, your true self that never changes, 
that is meant to be in charge of all of these parts, you know, sort of like the orchestra conductor. And so I've noticed that when I pay attention to these different parts, I'm automatically more connected to self, mm. you know, and that working with, with archetypes, for instance, um, is a way to tune into self. Like I see archetypes as sort of like bridge parts, parts that are, you know, br bridge between self and the smaller parts, if that makes sense. Anyway, I know we're going off topic a bit. No, but... that's so interesting and important. Yeah. So, yeah. And that, and that the point being that in order to deal with that level of grief, you have to be really strong in yourself. And it's a, it's a journey. Like I, I know I've only dealt with, a, you know, a smidgen of that grief so far. Yeah. Well, that's enough sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a journey. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I love the conduct, the image of a conductor as self. I think that could be really helpful. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've thought about self as the container for all the parts for a long time, but the contain that's a thing. That's not a person who's active. So I, I think that could be a really helpful image for. Yeah. So that's what I would say is start by that kind of level of tuning in and then see what your parts have to say to you. Love it. Susan, thank you so much for being here, for thank giving you. all of your nuggets of wisdom and insights into how you take care of yourself. It's been so amazing to hear from you. Incredible. You. It's been great to be here. I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Thanks. We appreciate you. Thank you for being a part of it. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, Susan's the best. She is. She is such a gem. She really is. She had so many incredible things to say and the way that she words things. I think just for me, it's like my mind can feel my mind like shifting around what she's saying and like really thinking mm. about things differently. Yeah, I feel really relaxed <laughs> when I listen to Susan. Like... I want to go to a Zen state of just, huh, like breathing deeply because she's so calm. She's every time centered. She talks. She's so centered. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 And she, she really explained the, uh, the parts aspect really clearly, I think to me, it was, you know, it's kind of an abstract thing to think about, but. But the way that she talked about acknowledging the different parts of you, of yourself, that I think really kind of helped shift my understanding of the internal family. What, what is it again? Yeah. Internal family systems. You're right. <laughs> okay. I was, I was going down the road of internal medicine. Anyway. Some stuff like that, like with models like that, it can be so confusing. It's sort of, I think in a way it's kind of like EMDR, you know, where mm -hmm. you're, someone explains it to you and you're like, what, what yeah. are you even saying? And then yeah. when you actually kind of get there, it doesn't happen just by talk, like just talking about it necessarily. I feel like it is an experience mm -hmm. and that's really hard to describe. You yeah, know? you're right. You're right. I, I just thought it was so insightful how she was able to connect 
so many different creative outlets into such deep work of knowing herself. And I think I think sometimes I don't want to put in the work uh, to do that on my own sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is work and I think it's accurate to describe it as such. And I can also see how coming at it from that creative, like maybe, maybe looking at it less like you're fighting against something and more like you're finding other options. Like it's more of an expanding Mm. versus Mm -hmm. like, forcing yourself down into this, which I think a lot of us live in that place, right? Like we live in this very restricted, constricted mm-hmm. kind of like our shoulders are up, like our, you know, we're not breathing. And I think maybe something that these different modalities that there's others, right. That Susan didn't talk about, but maybe it's a way of us finding a little space and expanding out of that place. Yeah. I think Sometimes I get caught up in, ooh, like, that sounds cool. I'd love to do that. But then when it really comes down to it, I really don't want to do it. And I think sometimes I just want to... I feel like sometimes I love the idea of something, but... And I know it could be helpful, but at the same time, it feels exhausting just thinking about it. And that I think that's why I'm so impressed with Susan and how much she's done. I also think it's easy for me to, to get stuck in this belief that I have to do it in order to get healing. Like, yeah. I have to do all these things um, that are available to me. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, like the putting, pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Just putting too much pressure on everything when really it's it's really just about your own individual journey and and what works for you and what what is going to help you get to a place of acknowledging yourself and um and being able to do your own work on yourself. Yeah. Yep. I think that's perfectly said. I think the acknowledgement has to be, and it has to come in, in phases, right? Like we, I think a lot of us, when we think about, I think a lot of the the reason a lot of us don't like the term coming out of the fog is because it sounds like something that just happens. Like Mm -hmm. one day you wake up and the fog's not there maybe. Mm -hmm. And that is so not the reality of the process. And that so Mm -hmm. much of this is layers upon layers of decades of work and, and growth and healing. And, you know, maybe some of the acknowledgement that we can do in one phase of life is going to be so different from five years later, six months later, even sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, you know how, how I feel about coming out of the fog. Right. I always hated that term. I, I think, yeah, I, I think you're right. It, it is about like this idea that it's just instantaneous fog has been removed. I, I do understand why. This is like a totally different tangent, as as we know. But I I think because the process of learning about yourself and growing and healing and working towards wellness 
feels a little foggy. For sure. Like, it doesn't just go away. It doesn't just lift, you know? Like, I understand the idea, like, oh, like, so many other pieces of the of adoption are revealed, but the the amount of work that it takes to get to a place of, like, healing and doing your work takes a while, and it often is sometimes confusing and hard to navigate. And yeah, that's why I think it's it's not as sufficient as it could be. No, and I think it's funny because I think we should even like break down coming out of the fog because you and I had a live, God, I don't even know, like six months ago, <laughs> no, longer than that, probably like yeah, a year ago, but um, <sighs> about what that means. And like we were talking through where it comes from and people were saying in the comments like, oh, it stands for fear, obligation, and guilt. And I was like, oh, okay, so it's like a – mnemonic device, fear, obligation, guilt. That's what we, we drop those things. But when I think of it, I actually think of the image of being in fog, yeah. right? Yeah. Like the weather and like coming out of that. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know if we've ever figured out like actually where coming out of the fog came from. I thought it was from Betty Jean Lifton, but I don't know. Or Nancy Berrier. I'm actually not even sure. Um, I can't remember. <laughs> I know. I thought it was from, I thought it was from, uh, um, yeah, but I, I haven't been able to find it. If someone listening to this knows, please send us a DM and help us. Right. <laughs> figure I, don't even, I don't even have the book anymore. I think I gave it to my mom. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, well, I've always used coming to terms with my adoption. Sure. That's kind of, that's where I landed because yeah. It kind of acknowledges, hey, I, I'm really sifting through the complexity of my own adoption, about adoption as a system, and, and also it kind of acknowledges that wrestling of it. Yeah. It's not a perfect, um, it's not a perfect like, oh yeah, I've, I know more about myself and um, understand the problems of adoption. No, it's like, there's a wrestle and there's a tension between it. And I think that's why I use it. It, I feel like there would be even more better ways to even explain it, but, um, but that's what I use. Yeah. Right. I think that's, but I think it's funny that we're talking about this because I think it connects so much to what Susan was saying that we, we come from things based on where we are. Mm Mm-hmm right? Like we don't necessarily need to put these ideas into us. We can see them as a reflection of where we're at in our journey. And so Mm -hmm. the mindfulness exercise I had thought of, um, is, is a little different today because of that. Um, and I just, if you're willing to give it a go with me, we can just do it real time together and it'll take, we're going to do it for a minute. Actually this time, one minute. There were a couple of people that were like, oh, the last time I felt really short. I was like, yeah, it's because we didn't actually do two minutes. We kind of, <laughs> but we're going to do it for a minute. And what I want all of us to do, if you all are, are willing, is to put your hand on your chest, heart center, whatever, and just acknowledge what you feel in this moment. You can focus on the weight of your hand on your chest. Just try to keep attention to that sensation. 
Okay, so coming back. What was that like for you, Katie? Well, my hand was really heavy. Mm. Uh-huh. And the positioning of my hand allowed my shoulders to drop, which was mm. kind of nice to be able to be conscious of that and then allow myself to relax even further because yeah. I was so conscious of it. Yeah. But yeah, my hand was really heavy. I'm I'm kind of surprised by that, but that's that's how it felt. That's interesting. It's funny because I had the opposite experience. I habituated to the feeling (laughs) of my hand where I couldn't feel it. Like I I went numb to it and I was like, wait, can I? And I had to focus really hard on feeling my hand. Mm. So. Wow. What does it all mean? I know. Right. We don't know. We just, (laughs) we don't know. We're just here experiencing things. That's right. Together. Well, I love you friend. This is always a gift. Yeah. Um, and I'm always grateful to have this time with you and we're so grateful to Susan. Thank you so much to everyone that has listened to our podcast, subscribed, given us feedback. Um, if you have a chance and would like to leave a review, we always love that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Write us up, man. Write us up. (laughs) Um, we will be back in a couple weeks. And we will be checking in with each other again and chit-chatting about what's to come. So we look forward to it. Whoop, whoop. Okay, bye. Okay, bye.